which is obviously we're continuing our study this morning of the book of Revelation after the last few weeks of preparation. Um, some background info, this week we begin to look at the text proper. Uh, we've identified some big ideas, some important things to keep in mind as we go through the book. Uh, you've got a couple of uh, uh, handouts. Did the other one make it out there this morning? Okay. Um, and just a reminder, if you've missed the last couple of weeks, uh, you can, or if you just were so impressed by all that you heard, you want to hear it again. You can go to our YouTube page at Grace Fellowship Prosser. Um, all the videos are posted there. They're streaming live there. Um, we can also now go in retroactively and load, upload them to the Facebook page, so, or on our website, rather. I don't want to mess with Facebook. They are on the Grace Fellowship website page, so you can watch them either place. YouTube will be the quickest and most direct. Um, okay, so having moderately prepared... For what is to come, uh, let's pray before we jump into the text. Lord, we're grateful for the chance to gather here this morning. Uh, we pray for those who are, are sick with whatever they're sick with this morning, Lord. We pray for, uh, for a quick recovery, for none of this to become uh, too serious that requires hospitalization or anything more, uh, more severe than that. Um, but it is hitting this community hard, so we pray for all those who are, who are sick that people would make wise decisions, um, that they would make good decisions about their health and think about the, the welfare of others as well. Um, and I pray that we use this opportunity uh, to think about the opportunity this gives us to help neighbors. Um, if we know we've got people in our neighborhoods who are sick, who might need uh, groceries, who might need the trash can moved out, whatever it might be, Lord, I pray that you help us see where we can be good neighbors, good loving neighbors um, in this time of difficulty. Uh, and I pray that you prepare our hearts and minds as we get into the text this morning. There, there's so much here for us to learn from. Uh, give us wisdom and discernment. Uh, help us stay focused on the messages that are clear and obvious, and we don't get too sidetracked into the things that might be less clear and obvious, and we, we don't want to major in the minors. Lord, help us take away the big message that you have for us here. Um, we thank you again just for this time to, to study your word, to learn more about you. In Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right, so here we go. Let's jump in and see how far we get. Revelation chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. The revelation of Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show to his servants the things that must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who bore witness to the word of God and to the testimony of Jesus Christ, even to all that he saw. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. Uh, if, your, if your Bible does little, uh, you know, subheadings or something in it, it probably has this marked as the prologue. These first, first three verses are the prologue. It's, it's kind of the intro. This is the, um, here's a few things for you to know before we get into the rest of it. That's, that's this section. And from the very beginning, John says... This is a revelation. Something is about to be revealed. It kind of has the effect of someone coming up to you and saying, I have a secret to tell you. I've got a confession to make. It kind of piques our curiosity, right? We kind of lean in a little bit. We want to hear what is coming next. What is, he, what is John about to reveal? And from whence does this revelation cometh? Well, then he tells us. This is the revelation 
of Jesus Christ. Now, we often hear this book referred to as John's Revelation, which misses the mark just a little bit. It's the revelation of Jesus Christ, which was shared with John. And in a somewhat unusual manner. I mean, we're, we're one verse into this text, and we already need a flow chart to identify the activities and the players. Here's the flow of information as it pertains to this book. The message that is about to be revealed starts with God. That becomes clear after a bit. That what is to be revealed is God's plan for the ages. It's, it's, a, it's a big message, but it starts with God. He shares this plan with Jesus, who not only transmits the plan, but plays a fairly significant role in the events to come. And Jesus makes the plan known then to his angel, who is tasked with sharing the message with John. It's a whole process. And then the angel serves as kind of a guide of sorts for John throughout the, throughout the book, through the visions. And then John writes the revelation down to present it, to make it known to the servants of Jesus Christ. They, these servants, these Christ followers, us, we're the intended target. We're the receivers of the revelation. So in fact, John kind of serves as a witness. For whatever reason, John was chosen to be the recipient of this revelation through a series of visions. And he declares it through this divine inspiration to be the word of God. What I'm about to share with you is the word of God. It's the testimony of Jesus Christ. Everything John is about to reveal, everything that's been revealed to him, he declares to be the word of God. Now this should grab our attention also. I think this is a really interesting point of emphasis here. What I'm, about to, what I'm about to reveal to you, he says, this is the word of God. It harkens back, at least it did for me, to the Old Testament prophets who often said, thus says the Lord. That got people's attention. Thus says the Lord. Over 400 times we read, thus says the Lord in the Old Testament. It's not used in the New Testament. This is as close as we get. This is already setting up to be something pretty remarkable. This is a message directly, but circuitously, directly, circuitously from the Lord in a thus says the Lord kind of way. And it's intended for, it's directed to the servants of Christ, which means that this is a message that we, as servants of Christ, we are meant to understand. It's not a message sent to just the PhDs or the anthropologists, or the church historians, or the theologians, or the Jesus code breakers, or modern day prophets and seers. It's a message given by God to Jesus to show to his servants, his people, his white collar, blue collar, no collar people. And an angel and John are the intermediaries through which this message is delivered. So Revelation, as we've said already, it's not a puzzle book that only a fortunate few can figure out. It is a picture book. It's heavy on symbolism. It's heavy on pictures. And it's, it's delivered to help us make some sense of what we see happening in the world around us. It's meant to give us some comfort. It is both pastoral in that sense, and it is prophetic. But not prophetic in the sense that we often mean it. Its focus is not exclusively on the end times. In fact, I would say that's not even really a focus. But that's how far too many people have approached it. It's a message about all times. It's a message about God and his people. 
In the New Testament especially, I think it's interesting that prophecy or, or prophetic statements are not uncommon. They, they're, they're throughout the, the New Testament. But they had very specific uses as a rule. In 1 Corinthians, Paul's discussing the use of spiritual gifts in the church setting. And, and it refers to prophecy specifically when he says, The one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding, their encouragement, their consolation. So this is one of the usual and expected purposes of prophecy in the New Testament. A few verses later, <clears throat> still in the same church, same topic. He says, but if the church just exercises all prophecy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He's called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. So prophecy in the New Testament is also useful to bring about conviction and repentance. For unbelievers, certainly, but for believers every now and again, too. In 1 Timothy 1.18, we read, This charge I entrust to you, Timothy, my child, in accordance with the prophecies previously made about you, that by them you may wage the good warfare. So prophecy is used as an encouragement. It's a call to use your gifts. It's a, it's a call to an impartation of spiritual gifts. Do what you've been called to do. And then we see how a prophetic insight was given to, I don't want that one yet, given to Agabus in Acts. Acts 11, starting verse 28 says, And one of them named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, according it, ascending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. So in this case, prophecy was used as a warning about upcoming events so the church, so Christians could respond and react accordingly. Now you'll notice that Agabus did not say, and the famine will commence on a Thursday, shortly after the noon hour. So while some in the church have been given a gift of prophecy, all in the church are admonished to test those prophecies, to test the spirits against the revealed word of God. So for example, just random example, when people start naming dates for Jesus' return, that's an example of a prophecy we ought to test. Or when some suggest that there's only one real true way to understand this book, and it's, it's based entirely on their unique insight into the mind of God, we probably ought to check that out for ourselves, which is what we're hoping to do as we go through. And I think you'll see that the book of Revelation really does fulfill all four of these purposes of New Testament prophecy, which, while it is still deeply pastoral, it's meant to comfort and edify and upbuild the church. It's, it's, it's meant to convict the unbeliever and possibly believers along the way. It imparts the gift of discernment and, and spiritual gifts in general. It helps build faith. And it warns us not to fall asleep at the switch. Because Jesus is coming. So it's entirely consistent with Scripture. And its message is intended for every believer, not just those who claim to get it or have some special insight. Which is why it says in verse 3, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and who keeps what's written in it, for the time is near. Again, this just reinforces the idea that this message is for all the servants of Christ. 
all time. Everyone who hears it will be blessed, not just the PhDs and the Jesus Code Breakers. The message is intended for everyone. It's meant to edify and exhort and comfort, to warn us about what is to come, and to call us to live rightly as we wait. Which begs the question then, how long must we wait? Because two times in these three verses we're told that these things must soon take place and that the time is near. Well, here we are, 2,000 years past Jesus' resurrection and ascension. And as far as we can tell, there hasn't been a coming on the clouds yet. So what gives? Well, I think one way to think about this is to consider how prophecies are often revealed in Scripture. They are always focused on large events or, or the character of the age surrounding events. We're given a picture that's painted in broad strokes. It's never focused on a clock or a calendar. In Mark 13, Jesus himself provided a list of things for believers to watch for, things that we should actively, continually pay attention to and watch for. And he listed false teachers, wars and rumors of wars. These must take place, but the end is not yet. Nation will rise against nation, kingdom against kingdom, earthquakes and famines. And we say, we have all of these things. I mean, just in the last 24 hours or so, there was an underwater earthquake in Tonga that led to like three-foot waves on the West Coast. We're seeing these major national disasters. Yeah, we have these things, and we've always had these things. And Jesus says, these are just the beginning of the earth pains, or the birth pains. And then he said, so be on your guard. Continue to be on your guard. So we're given a description of the buildup, the kinds of events that will take place leading up to Jesus' return, but there's nothing close here to any kind of identifiable timeline that we can mark on a calendar. I think it's interesting that John himself wrote in 1 John 2.18, Children, it is the last hour, and as you've heard that Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrists have come, therefore we know that this is the last hour. Now it's possible that John believed that Jesus was going to return any minute. Like, literally, any minute, this hour. I think it's more likely that he was reinforcing this teaching of Revelation, that there is going to be an ultimate, capital A, Antichrist who would appear, but in the meantime, in this time in between, between Jesus' ascension and his eventual return, there are going to be a lot of little, small A, Antichrists that we're just going to have to deal with. And we ought to stay prepared. We need to stay ready. We need to be awake. We need to be discerning. Because sooner or later, one of those little A's is going to turn into the big A Antichrist. And we need to stay spiritually ready. As as though the hour is near. As though it is the last hour. And if we view it from John's pastoral perspective, whether or not Jesus' return was imminent within the hour, as in any second now or not, John was still concerned for the souls of his flock, his church. So for them, their hour of decision was right now, regardless of when Jesus is coming back. Whom would they serve today? 
Whom would they worship today? So their eternal destiny is very much on the line at any given moment. And John calls them to respond to live as though Jesus is pulling into the driveway. Which is how we ought to live as well. So I think this also makes pretty clear that our methods of measurement don't really apply here. And rather than get frustrated that God is not working on our timeline, perhaps we should consider how naive it is for us to believe that the God who invented the very concept of time should somehow be beholden to our quite limited understanding of it. That he's going to work all things work all things out according to our schedule. When instead, I think we should find great comfort in the fact that God has a plan in place. He's had a plan from the beginning. And everything is going according to his plan, and someday he might just explain it to us because it doesn't make a lot of sense to us right now. But on this day, we're comforted in knowing that we will be blessed for having read and heard this message. Not bad for a prologue. (laughs) Verse 4. John, to the seven churches that are in Asia, grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead and the ruler of kings on earth. To him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priest to his God and Father, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. So another pretty loaded description here. Uh, John acknowledges the immediate primary recipients of this letter, this, the, the recipients of this revelation are the seven churches that existed in Asia. We're going to learn more about them soon. For the time is near. I just see if anybody's paying attention still. <clears throat> then John gives the what we've come to expect is the customary greeting that we saw in all of Paul's letters, for example. Grace and peace to you. So John starts with grace and peace to you, but then he adds a little extra something, something on there at the end. Grace and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come. So this marks the beginning, this this next section, of what turns out to be a pretty regular inclusion or referral to the Trinity that occurs throughout this book. The prologue that we just looked at mentions both God and Jesus, and here we get references to Father, Son, and Spirit. So John, being inspired and, and taught by God through Jesus, through this message bearing angel, John is really defining for us just who is in charge here. Remember back in Paul's letter, several times we pointed out how when John was getting into these, or Paul was getting into these more difficult arguments, he would give us these detailed descriptions of Jesus so that we could tell the difference between the Jesus Paul was talking about and the Jesus being taught by the false teachers. We need to be sure we understand the difference. I think similarly, John describes God, the originator of the revelation, as existing in an eternal trinity. He starts with grace and peace from him, from God, who is and who was, and who is to come. So we have this idea of an eternal, always existing God. I found this really interesting studying that in the Septuagint, which is the the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament, when Moses was confronted by God through the bush, and the Lord told Moses to tell the people, I am, 
has sent you. That doesn't quite translate the same way into Greek. The Greek language doesn't have the same kind of rules and words. So the Greek translation says, tell them the God who is has sent you. So we see the Old Testament God who is and the New Testament God who is, who was, and who is to come. I think it's interesting that in any language, apparently, the eternal triune God is the God who is, who was, and who is to come. And then John immediately adds, and from the seven spirits before the throne. This is a symbolic reference to the Holy Spirit. We'll see that more clear in the chapters ahead, but seven again refers to completeness or, or fullness. So seven spirits before the throne is the holiest of spirits. This is God the Holy Spirit that's referred to here. And then John includes a reference to Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, obviously a reference to his death and bodily resurrection. And then he goes on to say it's, it's, it's Jesus who is the ultimate and true ruler of the kings of the earth, even though it may not look like it to us at the time. Many kings and rulers have attempted to set themselves up above Jesus, but they're always brought down. He is the true king. And John goes on to describe this Jesus more fully. He says, it is him who loves us completely. It's Jesus who's freed us from our sins by his own blood. It's Jesus who, through his sacrifice, has made us part of his kingdom. He's made us into priests, a kingdom of priests, in eternal service to God the Father. And then there's this kind of big final descriptor. He gives us this, this ultimate stamp of authority for Jesus. He says, to him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Again, this highlights the eternal always existing nature of the triune God. And then he, then he stamps that with a big amen. So this buildup of these few verses here, this buildup of Jesus, is not without meaning or, or purpose. It's not just faint praise. It's not even just given as a, as a description of who John is talking about. But it kind of sets us up for verse 7, which reads, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, And every eye will see him, even those who pierced him, and all tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. Even so, amen. Now this is a pretty remarkable verse. You you think through what John has just said, what he's just laid out, that Jesus is is worthy of praise and honor and service and dominion forever and ever. Uh, he'll, He'll establish his kingdom forever. To him be glory forever. So for the seven churches and for all subsequent churches, including ours, Jesus coming on the clouds is good news. This is great news. In fact, it becomes increasingly greater news as we get closer to that day. But it's not great news for everyone. He is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all tribes on earth will wail on account of him. This gives us a really clear, stark idea that a line is going to be drawn between those who are are thrilled and overjoyed and and, uh, expectant, waiting to see Jesus coming with the clouds, the seven churches we assume, and, and all Christians in between. All believers throughout time will be rejoicing, and there's a line between them and all those who are opposed to Jesus. All those who realize too late that they chose to ignore Jesus. They refuse to believe his truth claims. 
and now it's too late. All will see him, even those who went so far as to persecute him, to kill him. Or those who have persecuted his church, the bride. It will not be a glorious day for many. And this realization, this this picture that's painted here, is not one of calm acceptance. There's this moment here where all eyes will see Jesus, and it's not going to be a lot of people going, well, shucks, we missed that one. There's going to be an, an immediate understanding of what their rejection means. Their rebellion against his kingship will be clearly understood, and there will be wailing from all over the earth. He's coming, and every eye will see him. Everybody, all at once, will see that Jesus is coming. 1 Corinthians 15 says, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, it's going to come quick, but in a moment, everyone will see him. He's going to come on the clouds. This is going to be a global phenomenon. So consider how this stacks up with what's often portrayed in the media or even in some Christian circles where there's some kind of secret, unexplainable, rapture type event where people just disappear. And most of the world stands around wondering what happened. You know, those who are left behind, no pun intended, those who remain They're going to go into this, you know, existential crisis mode, awestruck and confused. Gosh, I wonder what happened. Where did everyone go? That's not the picture presented here. I mean, that popular misconception is already brought into question with just this one verse. Every eye will see him. Everyone will know and understand what has happened. Now, Jesus had his moments of being meek and mild. His return is not going to be one of those moments. All will see, and many will fear, and dread will strike many, and all tribes of the earth will wail. And then John adds, even so. That might seem a little flippant, a little unconcerned, perhaps, but I really think it's just resignation of the reality of the second coming. Many are called, but few are chosen. Wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. People, all people, will be given a chance to respond to the gospel, but few will find the narrow gate that leads to life. Back in the Mark 13 text, Jesus said that the gospel would be proclaimed to all nations before his return. So a gracious God, a loving God, a loving Savior has given or will give everyone the opportunity to respond to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ in ways I think we can't even really understand or fathom. Now, we can blame God for the consequences of our decisions, I suppose, but he has given us a chance, he will give us a chance to decide whether we follow him or not, and many choose not And even so, is John just accepting this reality? People will be afraid. Entire nations will wail. But they were warned. They had a chance. Even so, amen.
So be it. Verse 8. I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who is and who was and who is to come, the Almighty. This is kind of the, the exclamation point on this opening section here. Now, in context, John is still clearly referring to Jesus Christ. And so when you see the quotes, this is Jesus saying, I am the Alpha and Omega. Now, Alpha and, Alpha and Omega are the, are the first and last letters of the Greek alphabet. So Jesus already starts giving us this kind of symbolic approach, a symbolic way of understanding that he has always been. He is the first and the last. He is who was, who is, and who is to come. Same thing he already shared in verse 4. But in verse 4, that reference was to God the Father. Verse 8 is referring to Jesus. So here's another nod to the idea of the Trinity. It harkens back to when Jesus said, My Father and I are one. He meant it. As much as this concept of the Trinity may frustrate or confuse us or bewilder us, it is reinforced throughout Scripture, especially in Revelation. So here's one more opportunity for us to be reminded that this message is from the three-in-one God. He is the beginning and end of our time. He is in control of our time. And it's his plan which is about to be revealed. This is the revelation. Jesus will come with the clouds. And every eye will see him. And all the other stuff that's about to be revealed... And there's revelation aplenty in the pages to come. But we are to consider this revelation absolutely trustworthy and reliable, with absolute certainty as to the source of the revelation, the one who is, who was, and who is to come. This is the revelation from the creator, from the architect, the creator of time, the great I am, the almighty pretty good introduction. Let's pray. Father, again, we're uh, amazed at the depth of your word here, at the um, astounding continuity of your word and your plan. It's easy for us, the the Bible is such a a big, deep, rich book, it's easier for us to just think of it in in segments, in, in chapters, in books. And yet when we see how it all lays out, it just it forms this perfect picture of who you are, your, your plan for the ages, your love for your creation. And I pray that as we continue to go through that we 